and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Hi everyone, I hope that your week is getting off to a great start and I am so looking forward to sharing today's episode with you. Sophie Morgan is a TV presenter, Condé Nast traveler columnist and disability advocate. When she was 18, on the night she received her A-level results, Sophie crashed her car and was left instantly paralysed from the chest down. Everything she had dreamed of for her life was instantly forgotten and her journey to rediscover herself and build a different life began. I want to go to some extraordinary places, meet some extraordinary people and do some extraordinary things, she wrote from her hospital bed the day she was discharged after her accident. But as a recently injured paraplegic woman, she would go on to face barriers as complex and nuanced as her impairment itself. In her words, when it comes to travel, total satisfaction can be hard, if not impossible, for disabled people to find. She's since made it her mission to right that wrong. Sophie first appeared in BBC Two's show Beyond Boundaries, which followed 11 disabled people on a 220-mile trek across Nicaragua, alongside another previous podcast guest, Amma Latif. After that, her career on TV grew and she became one of the first female wheelchair users globally to host on TV, playing a part in transforming the representation of disability on screen. As the lead presenter on Channel 4's broadcast of the Summer Paralympics, fronting her own primetime travel series and documentaries, as well as being a regular panellist for ITV's Loose Women. She's currently spearheading the global disability rights campaign, Rights on Flights, which has taken her to the White House to meet the president. And we talk a lot on today's episode about accessible travel and ableism. It's an issue that has been hugely overlooked in the travel sphere for too long and hearing Sophie's experiences as a wheelchair user on planes in particular but within travel more broadly really opened my eyes to the significant change that needs to take place to make travel accessible for everyone. Having said that, Sophie has been traveling literally non-stop for the last year. I mentioned it at the start of the episode all the places and adventures she's been on recently. So not only will today's episode maybe open your eyes to things you might not have thought of before, but it will also fuel your wanderlust for your own future adventures. From Scotland to the US, the French Alps to South Africa and Spain, I really hope you enjoy it. So let's get started. Sophie Morgan, welcome to the Travel Diaries. It is so nice to see you today. It feels like this has been a long time coming. How are you? Oh, well, firstly, thank you. It's so nice to see you. And yes, it has been a long time coming. It, I'm I'm good. I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I, I'm great. And I'm so excited to chat today because since we got this plan in the diary, you have literally travelled the world, <laughs> literally. I mean, Chile Pat- and Patagonia, Mm-hmm. London to Marrakesh by train, a three-week USA road trip, the White House. I mean, yeah. where do we get started? <laughs> Honestly, I've <laughs> never known it. It has been, I think, post-COVID. I'd, I've, tra- I feel like I've travelled more in these last few years than I have my entire life. It's been, it's been extraordinary. I'm really lucky, but yes, kind of tired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's start with the White House, because I mean, looking at your Instagram page, you know, just casual selfies with Joe Biden, as you do, the President of the United States. Tell us about what you've been doing over there, because it's amazing. Thank you. Well, yeah, it it really is surreal. In fact, it, whenever I look on my Instagram, my grid, I'm it is just sort of still to me quite breathtaking. I can't yeah. actually believe there's a selfie there with that man. So the reason for it was because me and my new business partner, Keely Catwells, who's who like me as um, a disability advocate, we were invited to the White House because they were celebrating um, two things. There was the anniversary of the ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is like our Equalities Act or Disability mm-hmm. Discrimination Act, yeah. which is basically the laws that protect disabled Americans. Um, and then the Re- Rehabilitation Act, there was an anniversary for that as well. So the White House put on this big party really this big celebration to 
to mark the anniversaries of these two things, the Rehabilitation Act and the ADA, and invited loads of disability advocates. Um, I think we were the only British ones there. That's I don't amazing. know. I'm not sure I didn't get a chance to speak to everybody. But yeah, so we were there just to really kind of pay homage to those who've come before us. I think also, I mean, just to recognise the work that's been done, but also think about the work that is yet to be done and needs to be done and yeah, you so know, tell us about this, the, you know, accessible transportation laws yeah. that you're trying to, that you're working on with them, because you've been essentially advising, right, with, with so the Biden-Harris administration. Yeah, so what happened was, I mean, advising probably a bit grandiose, but I'll say yes, but it's a little <laughs> bit less than that. So what's been going on is that basically I've been, so earlier in the year, long story short, earlier in the year, my wheel, I'm a wheelchair user, my wheelchair got broken. Yeah. My wheelchair got broken by British Airways mm. and it triggered um, a campaign and the campaign is now called Rights on Flights. And it has been a bit of a slog actually for the last, I mean, so that was in February. So it's been taking up the best part of this year. And I have just basically been trying to raise awareness of the problems that people like me and others within the disabled community face whenever they fly. And it has led me all over the place to the to Downing Street to to uh, deliver a letter that was asking for greater or enforcement powers to the regulators just to try and protect disabled people a bit more. Then also, yes, over to the White House. So I did actually go to the White House before this last visit with uh, to meet to meet the president to meet with the transportation secretary because they're doing a lot of great things in America that we could learn from. I got an invitation to go and sort of find out what was going on and whilst there met with so many others who are like me working in this space to try and make improvements, whether it's in legislation in design and, you know, there's loads of ways in which we can make things better. Yeah. So yeah, I've been, I've been kind of all over the place joining forces with other advocates who have either like me had a lived experience of something awful going wrong on an airplane or, you know, or have a, a family member who has a disability. And so they've got this firsthand experience, mm. but yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem, um, one that we are in this community very aware of, but we I worry the wider commu- wider public aren't isn't so familiar with. So part of the work yeah. is raising awareness, and the other part is doing the work to help change it. Absolutely, I mean, following you um, and the, the stories that you've shared about your travel experiences um, re- really kind of opened my eyes to issues that I hadn't Mm. it hadn't I hadn't contemplated that a wheelchair user would face it just hadn't Mm. I hadn't taken the time to to think about it and you've you've talked about ableist practices on certain airlines and I just wondered if you could explain to my listeners Mm. about kind of ableism because I know that even you said before you had your accident you know it wasn't something that you were especially familiar with either Absolutely. And you know what, Holly, I would say, I appreciate you saying that because I think some non-disabled people feel embarrassed that they don't know the realities of what we're dealing with. Um, But I would always start by saying, I didn't know about them either until I became disabled. And it's been a massive learning curve. So I was paralyzed in a car crash 20 years ago and came face to face then with the, the, you know, the plethora of barriers that people like me face. And one of them is is air travel. So I'll tell it from, I'll, I'll, I'll unpack some of the problems that you face if you're a wheelchair user, but just to say there are many other ways in which air travel is, is what we call ableist towards people with disabilities. They're nuanced and they're complex and there's lots of different problems out there. But for a wheelchair user specifically, the reality is when you arrive at an airport, you never really know what's going to happen next. And it can vary from country to country, from airport to airport. I mean, it is, it's a lottery and that risk, factor is is so intimidating because what happens is you get to the check-in typically you would have had to pre-advise of your access requirements now that's almost the first barrier that you face because some people who use wheelchairs will not actually be allowed to fly so their equipment might be deemed um so they their batteries for example won't be safe or they carry certain equipment with them like oxygen or there's there's lots of ways in which the airlines can immediately say no and that is one bug to bear. That is just, I mean, it's unbearable. It's actually, yeah. it's, it's pure discrimination. It's plain and simple, but they, they, they hide behind the various regulations and safety measures, et cetera. So it's very frustrating. And a lot of work is being done to try and 
provide solutions at that very early stage. So if you and, can and does actually, that vary from airline to airline? So like, is there a lack of consistency do. between them as well? Absolutely. So that you don't know what to expect in that respect. That's exactly right. So you can turn up one day and I've had it. I've turned up once and I, even though I uh, have been flying with the same equipment, suddenly they said, no, we don't accept this equipment. And I, the battery on my, on my machine was deemed unsafe. And so I was turned away, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's, and, and, and for those listening, they'll go, well, obviously safety is a huge concern. Of course it is. But what you have to understand is the lack of sort of harmonization and consistency makes that really tricky. And the other part is the airlines aren't doing the work in our experience from, from what I've been learning as a campaigner um, and from lived experience, the airlines aren't doing the work to make sure that there's a way around that and understanding that there's a human being behind this problem and they need to try and accommodate us. So, so there's those problems at the very, uh, at the outset. Then once you get through security and, you know, the airport itself, which might, it used to not be very accessible, but we're seeing infrastructural changes now, which is, which is helpful. Then it's the whole boarding process. And I have to say that's where it starts to become very inhumane. So someone like me, who's unable to walk, um, at the point where you board the aircraft, your wheelchair basically is taken away from you and put into the hold. Some wheelchairs, if they're small enough, like a manual wheelchair that can be folded and there's room and the aircraft is big enough, they might let you store it in the cabin. But by and large, it's taken down and put into the hold and you are transferred onto this tiny little seat called an aisle chair, which I have to say is really not fit for purpose. It's firstly if you're able to use your hands, you can't self-propel it. It's designed to be pushed. And so you completely lose your independence and your agency Ugh. at that point, which is yeah. really intimidating. Yeah. But even if you aren't able to push, there's it's very poorly designed. You're sort of strapped in. Picture sort of Hannibal Lecter, strapped in with lots of different straps all over you. It's really, really horrible. And then, you know, you get on the plane, you're dragged around the cabin, taken to your seat. And at that point, then you've got to work out, you know, once you're deposited in your seat, either through support or independently, like as in moving yourself across. You know, if you need to go to the loo, you've got to navigate that problem. Some aircrafts don't keep on board one of these small aisle chairs, which means you cannot go to the loo. You cannot move around the cabin. Um, so you might have seen examples in the press of people sort of dragging themselves around cabins or whatever. It's, it's awful. Um, yeah. A lot of people starve themselves, dehydrate themselves, myself included. You know, if you know that you're not going to, you're going to be on one of these small planes, you have to factor in going to the loo before and after. But the it's anxiety. It's incomprehensible, actually. I have to say, if I could get through to people and say, look, could you imagine if the loo wasn't working on the plane? Yeah. How would you feel? Exactly. And people go, oh, well, I wouldn't fly because, you know, and, and fair enough. You know, and it's this, it's just like, wow, well, this is it anyway. So the last, the last bit is that more often than not, there's damage done to your body. That's one thing because invariably there will be, because if you do mobilize around the cabin using one of these aisle chairs and try and get into one of these small toilets, they're usually very, very inaccessible. And that's really hard. People have been dropped. People have been hurt. It, it's really hard. And then lastly, the problem that we, we do find happening daily is wheelchairs getting damaged, lost, or worst of all, broken. And the impact that has on somebody's lives, I mean, it is the same as having your legs broken. Yeah, it's you a lifeline. You cannot do anything. It's exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a lot. And, 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 and on top of that, there's so many other little, other little nuances that I could go into, but you just get the picture. <laughs> so there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it feels like you are heading slowly towards positive changes. That's right. There is. And it, there is hope in all of this. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, but there is certainly hope that it will be done. It's just a matter of when. And yeah. I keep trying to stress in my campaigning and whenever I'm given the, the opportunity to talk or somebody's listening, is sort of sort of trying to trying to stress this is an, an this is a crisis. For in my opinion, we I mean in America, I think the stats is 35 or 36. Certainly in the 30s, wheelchairs are broken every day. Now, if that was happening to people's legs at the same rate, we, there'd be an outcry. There would be a boycotting of airlines. Be the government would step in. First headline on the news. You know it. They'd say, "God, you know, get your act together, airlines. Otherwise, we're going to whatever, fine yeah. you." But you know, at the end of the day, that's 
that's not what's happening. People don't see our devices as part of our body, even though they are. Anyway, so yes, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. There is hope on the on the horizon. There's some fantastic campaigns running. There are some amazing solutions out there, including the option now to potentially, within the row of standard seats, remove some of those seats so that a wheelchair user could potentially travel in their chair should they choose to for short haul or long haul, which is one step forward. But at the same time, if you don't have accessible toilets, think about if you were on a train and you've got that space for a wheelchair user, as we all see, that sort of space would be ideal on an aeroplane. But it only works if there's a disabled toilet that you can actually access as well. So, you know, it's baby steps, but but certainly things are moving. It's just glacial, glacial pace. (laughs) And I mean, despite all of those potentially traumatic hurdles that you face traveling as you said this has been one of the most busy years for you and I am really looking forward to going through your seven chapters of your travel diaries today because you've traveled to such interesting locations and obviously you have so many interesting and important stories to tell so we're gonna start at the very beginning Um, of your life chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory so I think the earliest the earliest my memory is shocking it's awful and I hate it so I'm always trying to encourage my parents to drag out pictures because I just so much of my my childhood is is a blur to me is that because of your accident do you think I have I have been told there could be something to do with that yeah but I I, I'm not sure Mm. um but certainly the earliest memory I have of of going away is being bundled into the back of my parents' car with my little brother and wrapping us ourselves up in, in our duvets and driving out to France to go to the Alps. Mm. And my dad was um, a brilliant skier, still is. Yeah. Um, and he taught he taught me and my little brother to ski. So we would go to, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you the names of the places that we went. I just remember driving up those wonderful hairpin roads rows that snake all the way up into the Alps I remember I mean the the blur between the you know the channel tunnel and all of the kind of the middle parts of France is is that 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 doesn't I can't recall that but just the the snaking up into the into the mountains and then being in the snow and and then just yeah I loved that I loved that so much it was such a privilege being able to do that with my with my little family I loved it and I mean, like you're, you're, you're saying how much then, you know, you loved the the skiing. I mean, you've described yourself as, you know, always being a very free spirit mm. um, and travel was important to you from a young age. I loved it so much. I honestly had this bug for it and I couldn't, I was always sort of slightly unsatiated, I think all of my teens. So those little memories there of skiing, you know, a pre-teen in my teenage years, I didn't travel as much. I got my, I, we would drive out to the Alps as often as we could, but as a family, we didn't really do many other kind of holidays. And then, as I got into my teens and started to think about where I wanted to try and get myself to, I didn't have any money, so it was like, you know, the dreams were big, but the um, the realities were just sort of not so exciting. But I, I will, I do, I did have this feeling that travel was where I needed to sort of spend my time you know I wanted to kind of explore all the time I just loved I loved that process of I suppose that it started young being bundled up into something and just transported into another world I loved yeah, it yeah yeah the excitement of it it's, yeah the thing about it's so interesting with um with all my guests I feel like so many of their earliest childhood travel memories are actually less about the destination and more about the that journey of getting up early in the morning and getting into car, packing oh, into the car, the kind of the the yes. little snack you might have packed or, yes. you know, the excitement as, you know, you're all getting ready in the dark. Or, and it's so funny, isn't it? It's, when you're little, it's the the journey and the build up, the anticipation. Oh, you're so right. It's the feeling. It's the, it's almost like the pre-Christmas feeling or something. Yeah, it's yeah. like that Christmas Eve feel and the vibe of just, you you know, the the pure excitement of something new and I think that's so addictive and just that, oh, where now? What are we doing next? Where are we going? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, on the night of your A-level results party, everything everything changed. Mm-hmm. You've said that in that instant, your 
dreams were pushed to one side and you had to let them go but what you couldn't let go of was your desire to see the world yeah so absolutely just it was I felt so robbed of this life I had imagined for myself and I felt so close to it you know so yes I had my that was the day the injury happened on the day that I got my A-level results. And if you think about the significance of that time, I think for anybody, certainly UK listeners, that, you know, the summer of your A-level results, yeah, it's so heady and exciting. And you're thinking about what's next. And you're, I've, I was sort of in that, you know, in that precipice, I call it, of a kind of just leaving childhood and falling into adult life. And I felt very much like that adult life looked like an adventure. And I was so in my mind, ready to go and explore and and be in the world free. And that word free kept coming back to me all the time. And it's in all of my diaries. I'm always going on about how I want to feel free. And (sighs) what that meant was putting on a backpack and traveling somewhere. I thought, I mean, I wasn't actually going to do, you know, massive travel. I hadn't planned any massive trips or anything like that. I just knew that's what I wanted to try and do at some point. I was actually planning to go into higher education and do a degree and stuff, but I, I just knew that travel was going to be this huge part of my life. And then I had this car injury, a car accident and a spinal injury and everything changed because the concept of travel was then utterly redefined and completely unobtainable. It felt, I think to begin with. And, yeah. um, because I guess it was also a long journey of rehabilitation to, yeah. to like compared to, you know, your strength and fitness now. Yeah, there was a lot that I had to regain. And it wasn't just about, so to be clear, there was no regaining of the function of my body because once I was paralyzed, it was instant and it was complete and it was irreversible. So from the level of my chest down, everything I lost in all of the movement, all of the sensation, everything that was gone was never coming back. But the rehabilitation process was very much about me adapting to life with that disability and finding ways to to regain a life and, and certainly a life worth living. And I grasped that kind of, you know, I was so determined to re refine my my life, but I had to do it within this context of, you know, disability. And and yeah. we're and, and as a wheelchair user, what, what that meant was unknowable I didn't I didn't have a clue what that looked like so it was um it was the beginning of a very very difficult journey (laughs) 20 years ago yeah yeah because you you just marked it of course the with your journey um across the US tell us a little bit about that Oh my God. I just what was still... it that you were traveling on? What, 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 what would you call that vehicle? So it's called a Can-Am Spider. So Can-Am is a brand. More fit for, People in the States will, will have heard of it and, and seen far more of them than you do in the UK. But yeah, Can-Am is the brand. And the vehicle that I did the ride on is called a Spider. So it looks like, for anyone who's not familiar, it's two wheels on the front and one wheel on the back. So it's like a trike. But um, it is just... Oh my God. It's so much fun. And, uh, it's just pure freedom for me. I mean, so I basically, I, I I wanted to ride London to LA, but I wasn't, I didn't have enough time to get from London all the way around sort of and go, I just, the routes were looking a bit tricky. And so in the end, I decided to just fly from London to the East coast of the States and pick up the spider in, in DC and then ride across the whole of the US to get into LA on the day that my injury, the anniversary of my injury. So that's the 18th of August. So I set off around the first. So I didn't give myself a huge amount of time, to be honest. Um, was it was so three weeks or so, was it? Exactly, yeah. just under. So it was a really massive mission, but it was so a lot much of fun to cover. It was so much fun. And what was your highlight? Oh, oh, honestly, I I will never get over Jackson and the Grand Tetons, the 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 just south of um, Yellowstone in Wyoming. Never se- in Wyoming, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Oh. Jacks, I mean Yellowstone itself was 
amazing. Mm. Um, but we weren't blessed with very good weather, unfortunately. We'd been we'd been in the rain from around near where Mount Rushmore is, the Black Hills, which oh gosh, they they were beautiful, but really, really, really bad bad weather and bad visibility, which was made the whole riding experience pretty tough. And and we and that continued all the way into Yellowstone. So that was a bit of an anticlimax because I've been so excited about seeing that. However, we did do some wolf tracking in Yellowstone, in northeast Yellowstone, which was mind-blowing. So a tiny little wolf pup, which was awesome. Today's episode is supported by Dr. David Jack. In a world of confusing skincare routines, overwhelming product options, and endless TikTok skincare hacks, Dr. David Jack has arrived to revolutionize your skincare journey. Welcome to the era of healthy, happy, and rejuvenated skin with Dr. David Jack's streamlined approach. So a bit about Dr. Jack. He's a leading aesthetic doctor with an NHS background in plastic surgery, and he has award-winning clinics in London's Harley Street and Belgravia. He's witnessed the skincare struggle firsthand, how overwhelming it can be, but he is here to change the game. And I can speak with experience because I've been using his products for the last few weeks and I'm already noticing such a tangible change, not only in its appearance, but also in my own experience. Because at the heart of his revolutionary skincare line is the Daily Skin Trio. This is a capsule collection that is about to become your skincare soulmate. Three products, three simple steps. Waking up to radiant skin with a powerhouse vitamin C morning serum, protecting your skin with a nourishing SPF day moisturizer, and then gently replenishing with a regenerating retinoid night cream. Three steps, all your skincare needs from day to night. So are you ready to embark on a streamlined journey to true skin health? Get rid of all that confusion. Just focus on these three things that you need on your shelf, these three amazing products. The Daily Skin Trio. You'll be pleased to hear I have got an exclusive discount code for you to use when purchasing. Just use the code SKINJOURNEY15 at checkout. That's SKINJOURNEY15 at checkout. Thank you to Dr. David Jack. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. I think as a Brit traveling through America, I I felt this sense of, I don't know how to describe it, the scale of that place in contrast to what we're used to. It's actually impossible to get my head around. I mean, I, I, I remember riding into Idaho and it's just... I just, there were these roads that would go on forever, Holly. And I just was, you know, it felt like I was, I think we drove, I don't know how many UKs fit into our journey, but I'd say 
you know, probably at least six, the route we went. And you just think it's like the UK is so small. And until you get out into these huge, vast places and start to see, I mean... But that's the beauty of slow travel as well, because you're getting the context of that because you're actually crossing on the ground as opposed to just flying from spot to spot. Absolutely. You you get that sense of the the insignificance of us as these tiny little human beings (laughs) and this epic world. And I... I love that too. I, I wish I'd had longer, but it's just I had work kind of on either side. So I had deadlines and things. So, but if I could, I would have taken, you know, a lifetime over that journey. You yeah. could spend so much time exploring all the national parks. They're absolutely, yeah, mind blown. Yeah, some of my favorite places in the world as well. Well, let's move on now to chapter two. And that is the first place you fell in love with. The first place I fell in love with was the south of France. Um, my family, used to so we had some very good family friends who lived um down in the south of uh, france um in a small little village called cotignac which is Mm -hmm. in the var which Mm -hmm. is if you're it's about an hour and a half northwest of nice and um not an an, an equidistant actually from from marseille so up in the hills of provence and um these family uh friends they lived there and i used to go down and stay with the daughter and we just I just loved it. There. It was just, mm. oh my gosh, so gorgeous. I loved it. And my family would come down too. And as a family, we all fell in love with this area. And we just kept fantasizing about the idea of, of also having a house there, uh, like, like our friends did. And it was just this ongoing fantasy throughout my entire childhood. And actually, when I had my injury, not long after, my dad just said, you know what, life's so short we should we should get a place there we should find a way um and we did in the end he, well i say we he bought this land oh. and it was amazing the story i won't it's long but he basically he bought some land down in this area and um over the course of about a decade slowly built a house there and oh. we built it all accessible for so we we designed it together as a family and yeah honestly it that place for us is is a second home now and I I just love it so much. I mean, the the French villages and the countryside, the the vineyards, the oh, the whole thing is just the wonderful. light there. Is yeah, so beautiful. don't get me started on the light. Everyone <laughs> always tells me to stop talking about the light because oh, I paint. Really? You love Honestly, the light, dear. Yeah, I love the light. Oh yeah, because you're an amazing painter. I paint, you? and I used to go down there, and and when that when I had more time on my hands before my life got so busy, I used to go down there for summers and I'd kind of just go there and paint. And I just, oh, that was a life that was amazing. And what a, was a kind of he- a healing place for you. hundred percent. It was where I fixed myself. And I think it also brought my family together as well. We congregated there after my injury and had good times, you know, and after all the trauma and all the sadness and all of the upheaval of my injury and then you know everything it was it was where we used to go and drink wine and sit in the sun and listen to the crickets and escape um it was it was very very healing place that sounds magical I'm so happy for you that it's like that you're still getting to go there as well absolutely although that chapter has now closed somewhat and I I leave it in the past because I'm actually thinking about moving to America. In fact, I kind of am. So I'll tell oh you about that goodness. later. But oh, that, wow. yeah, it, that's that part of the world. Anyone who knows it knows what I mean. There's something in the air and there's certainly something in the light, but there's something in the air. It's yeah. just pure magic. magic. Mm. Well, chapter three is a place where you learned the most about yourself. Where would that be? Without a shadow of a doubt, it's Scotland. I went to Scotland when I... So my mum is part Scottish. Yeah, mm-hmm. My grandfather is Scottish from the borders, um, but they grew up. He moved out of out of Scotland when she was young, and she grew up in England. So she's always had this kind of fascination with Scotland with Scotland because of her dad. I never met him, but I inherited her fascination certainly because she would talk about it so fondly. Anyway, I we never went there as a family, um, but when I was about in my early teens, I got in quite a lot of trouble. I was being quite a difficult little kid and I got kicked out of school. And then my mom was like, I think, I think I'm going to send you to school in Scotland. So she and my dad, bless them, they, 
They did. And they sent me up to Scotland. And uh, I thought I was, I, I mean, I had no idea what to expect, but I certainly wasn't feeling good about it, to be honest with you. Despite right. The, despite yeah, the fascination. I, despite the fascination, I was very much like, oh, what am I doing? But that was that. I, I, It was a kind of punishment because I'd been so badly behaved. And off I went to Scotland um, and completely and utterly fell in love with it. Um, and I spent the next five years there. So most of my teenage years there. Um, in, what, in, so in what part of Scotland was it? So it's up in um, Marisha. So mm-hmm. on the coast, the Marisha coast. Yeah. Near Nairn, in Elgin, near Elgin. So up in oh, there. Yeah. yeah, it's like a... It's, Landscape uh, like... Th- my husband's family live in Edinburgh. So we've traveled a little bit in Scotland as well. And it is... Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's one of those places yeah, that cool. you um, don't... It's one of those places where you would go on a plane journey, I feel, for like 18 hours to see something like that. And it's actually just an hour away on a plane or, you know, a, a You've summed a it up perfectly. Yeah. I, and I think sometimes uh, uh, there was moments where you just forget that you were... It, uh, it is it is an, another planet in the best way possible. It's so beautiful and so rugged and raw and real. And I loved it. I mean, uh, exploring Scotland... You could just I could just do that for the rest of my life if yeah. I could. It was yeah. just wonderful. Um, so for people who haven't been, where, where yeah. would you for the places that you know you, you loved there? Where, where would you recommend to visit? Oh wow! Well, I mean, where I spent the most time was pretty spectacular. Places like Findhorn and that coastline, uh, um, the Marisha coast, really beautiful, but also the west coast of Scotland, some of the inner and outer Hebrides, if you can get to there, mm. wow, go. It's just, again, there's something about, how do, I'm trying to find the word and I'm struggling, but it is spiritual. There's You you leave Scotland feeling very different to when you arrived. And um, yeah, it just puts you in your place again. Do you know what? Something I suppose I, I could equate it to some of the ways I felt when I was in those national parks in America. Mm. It just feels quite untouched and quite unspoiled and as it once was and as it should be. And there's just, there's also this sparsity. There's no one around and certainly up in the highlands and, um, and further and further north and then for over to the east, over to the west coast. Sorry. Um, I'm not as familiar with the South and the, you know, that parts of those parts of Scotland, but certainly they're just as beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, that's so it was where, a place of real growth for you. Yes. A hundred percent. It's where I, you know, grew up. I spent my teens there and, and fell in love there. And I, under, I learned about myself there. And I think I just, it was the foundation for a lot, but unfortunately that's where I had my injury. So that's where I crashed my car and that's where I was paralyzed so there's a lot of history there for me. There's a, a huge amount of nostalgia connected with it. And so in some respects, it's like a, again, like a home for me, a second home, but in a very, at times, painful way, because it's where I walked. It's where I climbed and run around in the mud and, you know, even went skiing. Oh, gosh, there's brilliant skiing, you know. Mm. Well, I was, brilliant's a bit strong but there's skiing (laughs) (laughs) and I I did all of that as a kid and I had such a privileged wonderful life and then yes now as a wheelchair user it's hard to go back because I look at a lot of the landscape and it feels inaccessible to me um whereas once before that felt like my oyster I could just do with it whatever I wanted I could you know camp in it and just do whatever I wanted in that in that landscape but now not so much so it's a special but difficult place for me to 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 think about you were saying how it, you know you could draw comparisons with a lot of the wildness of Scotland to to the US national parks and you know having then just experienced a lot on on your on your trip in America and 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 your travels you know what um national parks or wild spaces have you found particularly did embrace you and and cater to y- your needs it's a really great question and actually it's the reason why I want to move to America is because the national parks there and actually much of the outdoors in America I have found to, to accommodate people like me wheelchair users disabled people much much more than anywhere else um right. and I, I think I suppose I've really been on a 
two decade, 20 year long mission to find accessible spaces. And the more I travel in America, the more time I spend there, the more I explore and research, the greater it, it, it feels to me that there is this attitude around inclusion that I don't get anywhere else. And so really? the national parks say, for example, I mean, Yosemite, I went into the, into Sequoia with the, with the beautiful redwood, uh, Sequoia trees, sorry. And up by the redwoods and, I don't know. There was something about everywhere I went. There are yes, there are paths, but just the way it's configured, it feels like you can experience it too. Whether that's on a bike, whether that's in a wheelchair, whether that's in a car, whether that's on foot, it just feels inclusive somehow. Um, and I, 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 I don't get that sense in Scotland, and I think that's why I probably I have been searching for it. And, mm. and and I'm so looking forward to exploring more because I think the more I get, you know, even places like the Grand Canyon now, I've heard they've started opening up trails to make it more accessible. And there's just moves in the right direction that enable people like me to feel that equality of experience. Yeah. You're not just sitting on the side looking in, you're yeah. in. Yeah. And that feels, that feels really important to me. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm again, searching for it all the time. I'm excited for you for your new chapter. I mean, uh, let's put a chapter 3.5 in the travel diaries. Where, where are you, where are you move, where, moving to? Like what, what's, what's next? Do you think? California. Uh, so oh, my dream. I know. Oh, is it? Is it your <laughs> uh, dream? Yeah, totally. I got married in California. I'm an American citizen actually. So oh, wow. it's somewhere that I, you know, expect to live <gasps> at some point. Yes. And, uh, oh, we're kindred spirits. To, yeah. It's so Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? I, I So what part which are you going to pick? Oh, don't oh, this is the problem. Um I so I've always had it just like you said I've always feel like I was going to live there at some point. I just didn't know when. And then I spent a lot of time there before this bike trip. I was I was there in January, I was there last year. I, I keep going back there for various work opportunities or something. And um and I just was like, you know what? I need to move here. I love who I am here. I'm not as disabled here. I feel really free here. And I call it the land of the step free because it is just so like the step laws, free, you know, the, 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 <laughs> yeah, the laws that are, that are in place to protect the, the laws that took me to the White House. Sorry, I'm circling back. The reason I was in the White House in the first place was celebrating the ADA, right? The Americans yeah. with Disabilities Act. The ADA around America, in my experience, is far, far more enforced than any of the laws that we have in the UK. And I mean, there's pros and cons to everywhere you go as a, as a, as a disabled person. And I'm not going to say it's the best, but in my experience, those laws in California have mean that I, I think people like me can just go places without having to worry so much. You can, you can plan your life um, the same as anyone else. You know, I can, for example, go and meet friends and I don't have to worry about, is there going to be a loo there? You know, that's been my life for the last 20 years. Or actually, do you know what? I'm not going to come because I don't think I'm going to get in and I don't want to bother you guys because it's just a pain. You know, that 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 sense of uh, I've always been othered. And I've, yeah. been so, it's, I've normalized that for a long time. So yes, yeah. California is where I want to go first. And I, at the moment, it's going to be in LA. Um, but I'm exploring, I'm exploring California every weekend that I'm there, going all around. I've explored north, south, east, west. I love it. It's amazing. Love it. Oh, I love I'm it. I'm about so, to actually, in a couple of episodes prior to this, so it will already be out, but I'm doing a California destination special this series. Oh, which, you're serious? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have to yeah. tune in. Okay. I will send you the link. You must, yes. Um, yeah, I, so I love Santa Barbara. Uh, oh that's my, one of my favorite places that's we, amazing well I mean chapter four is your all-time favorite destination I mean it sounds like California's up there it it might well be yeah. yeah I'm struggling now to find places that top it because of course there's so much of it that it's so different and you've got the desert you've got you know the mountains you've got the beach you've got the wine country you've got like there's so much so to explore much. And every time I go out and explore another uh, another place, another part of it, sorry, I'm like, oh, I want to live here. Oh no, hold on, I want to live here. Oh, oh, no, no, here. And I just, I, I just love it. I also have to say, aside from the geography of it, which is stunning, it's also the people. I, I really like. Maybe it's a, it's an American thing in general. I've always found that kind of um, 
really positive outlook there. Sunny really. outlook. Well, somebody said to me, you can't be, how do they word it? It was brilliant. They said, you can't have a sunny disposition if it's not sunny. And I was like, that's so brilliant. <laughs> so true. And I, so out there, that whole have a great day. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I will. You too. You know, here yeah. you're like, you're right. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, that, so that's true. so, I think is fine. And I'm sure there'll be a moment where I'll go, oh God, I'm too British for this place. I need some sarcasm and dry humor. But at the same time, I do, I think I've had enough of, I've had enough of feeling kind of uh, slightly pessimistic here. There's a pessimistic outlook at times and, and, and it's contagious. I, I'm really leaning into that kind of, yeah, pseudo sort of happy that, that you get out there and I want to yeah. be around it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. wonderful. I can't wait to follow like what oh, you're going to do next. Wish me there. luck. Thanks. And- <laughs> And you, we, obviously we've we've touched on this already, but your experience traveling as a wheelchair user must have changed so much in in the time that since yes. since your injury. And your Condé Nast Traveler magazine column, Beyond Barriers, really focuses on you know the steps forward with accessible travel and, and new places are exciting that I imagine you'll be shining a light on coming up. But are there any destinations or hotels that you really feel like are specifically worth I mentioned I'd say one of the places that I still I'm not over really was um Chimuwu, which is a luxury accessible safari lodge oh, in yes. South Africa I saw that on your Instagram oh, oh my gosh honey. it's a fascinating place it's a private resort that was created by a couple a Dutch couple Ellie and Patrick and um Patrick had an experience and um, Patrick was in a, a wheelchair for a while and it just opened his eyes up to the problems that we face. And it made him question, you know, how do you do safari when you're a wheelchair user? And that's just opened up a can of worms. And so he's completely designed from, from the ground up because he owned this private land um, in South Africa, just south of the Kruger National Park. He designed this fully inclusive uh, destination, a private private resort, um, and then, yeah, just was like, I want to make it very luxury because I don't see why disabled people have to compromise on luxury. Yeah. So he went all in. And honestly, I, well, if, if you, if you get a second, anyone who's listening to this and you want to see it, just have a look on my Instagram at some of the things that they've created because the, the, you know, the little modifications that Patrick has made to sort of the safari Jeeps or to the, the resort itself, just to make it seamless and inclusive are just fascinating um and of course safari the experience of safari yeah I mean it's just yeah be, be, beyond the adaptations the fact that you can experience something so magical yeah. is just so wonderful and also I think that feeling of like that world could feel like it's inaccessible to yeah. you obviously financially sure but also physically and it just feels very much like oh, I can't do that stuff now if you have a disability or you know, or if you travel with somebody who might have a mobility impairment of any kind, I don't know, it just feels like it's not, mm. not fully, it couldn't, it might not be on your bucket list, but uh, thanks to these guys, it certainly can be on your bucket list. Oh, do you think that, are you hearing if there will be similar changes, you know, integrated oh, into, into other hotels in the area? Yeah. I think I don't, I couldn't speak for more of that particular area, but certainly across the world, every day I'm getting approached by people who are either looking to become more accessible or have done the work and want aid or maybe to be featured in the column or to you know be invited or if, if I'm really lucky invite me out to go and experience it and talk about it um and I'm seeing more and more disabled I'm not an influencer but disabled influencers going out and being invited to places that are doing the work and people go, look, we've done it. We've, we've, we've made steps. We've made changes. That's brilliant. Um, and that's really encouraging. So I, th- I, I can't help but feel that the inclusive travel, travel, accessible travel is sort of one step behind sustainable travel in that, in the kind of the mission of yeah. the industry, the travel industry to be better. And I'm hoping that we can, you know, obviously no, no, nothing is more no one is more important than the other, but certainly we can try and position our mission or our objectives and our, um, you know, and align them with with what's happened with sustainability. 
um, as accessibility. Yeah. 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 That's exciting. Yeah. Well, chapter five is your hidden gem. Sophie, that is a place that you love that maybe my listeners don't know so much about. What would you pick? What can you share with us? I think I'm going to say, well, you wouldn't really classify it as hidden, but Seville. I went there recently and I'd never been and I loved it. I was part of a plane free trip to go from the UK to Morocco. And we went by train via Paris, uh, Barcelona, Madrid, Seville, all the way down blah, 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 <sighs> into, into Morocco. Amazing. Over rage. a week. Yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. It was to sort of demonstrate you don't you can you can travel these routes without taking an aeroplane yeah. and how much better that is for the world, but also how much more accessible it is if you are someone who can't fly. Um and uh on the journey we stopped in Seville and I just fell in love with it like that. It was so stunning. The architecture, the food, the vibe, the culture. We went to see Flamenco and honestly, I was my, my mouth was just like, ugh. I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> shut my mouth for like half an hour. I loved it. It was so good. And yeah, I think I want to go back there. So that was not a hidden gem, but certainly for me, it was a new discovery. A gem, a real yeah. special place. It is such a great, it's got, um, again, a very special air about mm. it. I think mm-hmm. that's something, well, I guess it's so hot, isn't it? And it feels, yeah. it's just the, it's a, it's a great city and a, and a great recommendation and so easily accessible yeah, uh, by plane or by by train, and Absolutely. and I'm interested to know your experience of the European trains getting down there. How was that? Honestly, brilliant, oh, amazing, brilliant, yeah, so good. Because uh, the trains in the UK for well, especially for wheelchair users, but you know they they're expensive, they're difficult, they're not as enjoyable. Um, I, I, I would say they're not enjoyable. I don't know. I've not had an enjoyable train journey, but I. Definitely had an enjoyable journey going over through going over to France and then down through France into Spain, across Spain. I mean, the Eurostar is so easy and easy, so easy and accessible. Um, but the trains that run down through through France, gorgeous scenery, just sit there and relax and watch the world go by. And yeah, yeah before you know it, you're in Barcelona as well. You know, that's like oh yeah really recommend it really recommend it Mm. well our penultimate chapter Sophie is chapter six and that is your worst travel experience or the place that you would never go back to I when I was about a year post my injury so I was 19 years old and I'd only been paralyzed a very short time at that point and I um thought I knew it all a because I was 19 but b because I had made a lot of uh improvements like I had learned a lot about how to live with a disability quite quickly and I was feeling really super independent and brave and great and you know I'd learned to drive again and I was at that point I just enrolled in art college and I was you know stepping out and you know I felt very very brave and independent as a wheelchair user and I got this invitation from the BBC to go on an expedition across Nicaragua on foot uh, obviously as a wheelchair user but on foot uh, to go from the West Coast to the East Coast. And it was going to take place over about a month with 11 other disabled people, all to be televised. Um, and I thought that was a great idea. I thought, I'm going to do that. So I signed up, I auditioned, I got this position. And off I, f- I found myself flying to the Mosquito Coast in a massive army aeroplane, like in the hangar of this, this enormous army, army aeroplane. With all these, with all the crew, cameras, with all these other contributors as well, with various different disabilities. Yeah, because Anna um, Latif, who was on last season, he was on that series, right? Exactly. That's yeah. where we met. I love him. Yeah, me too. Um, he, um, in fact, he became very much like my my legs when I was there. He did a lot of pushing, and I did, did a lot he? of guiding. Yeah, we would oh. work in together. So he would stand behind my chair. And I would be his eyes and he would do my pushing. And so we had this little routine, you know, of us going through the jungle. But I have to say it was really hard because I hadn't quite realized then, it sounds naive perhaps now, but I then hadn't realized how disabled I was because I hadn't been out of and put myself into an environment that really, really disabled me. And yeah. being in the jungle as a disabled girl 
with very little upper body strength in a, in a wheelchair that really couldn't get across the terrain, I was absolutely paralyzed. You know, I felt as, as paralyzed as I had ever felt before. And it was really hard for me on top of that, all the weather and, you know, the heat and the mosquitoes and the, I mean, the hot, the conditions were extreme and it was very hard. And I, yeah, I had a mental breakdown really. And then I got amoebic dysentery and um, was oh sort goodness. of evacuated. It was awful. Oh my gosh. So I wouldn't go back there. <laughs> <laughs> no, not now. I could, I could, I could understand that. I imagine yeah. that it was a, it was a kind of moment of growth on reflection though. Yes. Oh, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt, as they say, post-traumatic growth. it was very yeah it was very much the case of I learned a huge amount about myself but also about um my disability and and that and that's okay it was you know it was a learning of what I couldn't do but it made me more even more grateful and uh have more drive to find the things that I could do so that's why you know I, I said it earlier the search the perpetual search for finding accessible spaces yeah um matters to me and and you know I I don't push my, put myself into environments that will make me feel disabled, really, because it's just there's no joy in it for me anymore. Yeah, but, yeah. So yeah, it was a learning curve for sure. <laughs> oh, Sophia, I've so enjoyed chatting to you um, and hearing your travel diaries. It's been such a pleasure. Chapter seven is our final chapter, and that is the destination that's at the top of your travel bucket list. Oh, so hard, this Holly, because you know why this is hard? Because every single year, this list gets adapted because more and more places become (laughs) accessible so because normally you know if you don't have a disability or whatever money is no object you can pick any list so you can curate any kind of list but for me for so long this list has been so limited but it's getting bigger and bigger every day so I really struggle with this question but I I I think it's the Antarctic I'd like to see I'd like whether I experience it on a boat or I don't I don't know how to experience it accessible in in an accessible way but I just it's there I just want to be there I want to see it I want to I want to be in amongst it that's what I want that's where I want to go yeah I'm really there yeah I think that's where I'd go brilliant oh I hope that you make it there very very soon Sophie Morgan those were your travel diaries thank you so much thank you Oh, a massive thank you to Sophie for joining me on the podcast, finding time in her hugely busy schedule. I so appreciate it. And I really hope you found it as interesting and informative as I did. It certainly made me look at travel through a different lens. You can read Sophie's Condé Nast Traveller column, Beyond Barriers, in magazines and online now. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to press follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. If you want to be the first to find out who is joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein and you'll also find me on threads and TikTok. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait until next week, remember there's the first nine seasons to catch up on that's over 100 episodes to keep you busy there don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests are included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app and listed on my website thetraveldiariespodcast.com thanks again everyone take care and i'll be back next week Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers? 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.